Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Rosie. How are you doing today? Doing great. Doing great. Great to be here. Let me just start with a quick introduction for our listeners. Rosie Chopra is the founder of Magical, a robotic process automation startup designed to move data across websites and web apps with few keystrokes. Magical was in stealth more than a few months ago, where they announced a 41 million raise led by Koto with participation from Greylock, Bain, and many other notable VCs. Rosie, your user base has grown exponentially to more than 400,000 users and around 10,000 companies use you worldwide. I do understand the growth because you're solving a pain point, at least a pain point I have. I use Magical to basically, on a daily basis, to be more efficient. I mean, anyone who has ever copy-pasted something a million times and wish it was automated, this is what Magical is about. Before we dive into the strategies you've deployed to acquire your customer base, take us back to the founding aha moment. Yeah, absolutely. So the founding aha moment actually came from our CEO and one of my fellow co-founders, Harpal. And he was an EIR, Bain Capital Ventures, um, for a period of time before we started Magical. And he had been prototyping and testing a number of ideas, and Magical was actually one of them. And so the aha moment for him was when he actually got Magical, like an early prototype of Magical out, and he started circulating it with the folks at the Bain office, as well as a couple of recruiters in his network, sales folks in his network. And after one day of using it, he had a few folks at Bain, I think it was like some of the office admin people that came up and actually gave him a huge hug because they were like, this just saved me so much time. And it was that moment that kind of crystallized that this is something that could be actually quite big. And so hearing that story and then from the rest of us as co-founders, then going out and testing it on our own with our own networks and even for ourselves um, was really validating because again, as a PLG, you know, product-led growth startup, a lot of the growth comes from building a product that people absolutely love. And if you can get to that aha moment with a user very, very quickly, um, we say, you know, we always strive to have time to value that's as close to zero as possible. Um, then you kind of know you're onto something pretty big. 400,000 users is an impressive number. How did you get there? Did Magical have any flywheel effect in place or a virality loop? Anything that has impressively jumped to 450,000, especially that you were in stealth mode. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say that the foundation of this is really, it sounds really cliche, you'll hear it from everyone, but it's like building a product that people love. Um, so it really comes down to the product. So people naturally are going to share Magical, which they do. We do have growth loops in that. We do allow for sharing. But then what we're actually seeing is folks who discover Magical in an organization, say they're on the customer support team on our on the sales team, they'll discover it, they'll fall in love with it, and then they'll go off and actually share it, whether it's via via the app, by sharing shortcuts, or sharing the app in general, or just actually by word of mouth. But really, that value comes down to building a product that people just love and they want to go out and talk about. And so that's actually been the biggest mechanism for us is really organic growth through sharing. And some of that are obviously coming from prompts to share the product, like we prompt you after a certain number of 
fills that you've completed to go out and share. But really, it comes down to people just doing it naturally on their own because they get so much value from it and they can't wait to share it with other folks as well, too. And so these group growth loops are actually very similar to what I saw in my past life. I, I used to work at a company called Atlassian, which you might be aware of, big SaaS giant that kind of coined the term PLG to begin with. And our mechanism for growth is very similar where, like I mentioned, you have a person that starts using magical, they fall in love, they share it with other folks on their team, those people fall in love, then suddenly it starts spreading cross-departmentally. And then in several cases, we start to see companies actually start to standardize on Magical. How did you find your early customers or how did they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So the typical ways that you hear from most startups, the first, I'd say 100 or 200 users came from friends and family, just getting them to test the product because Magical, you know, you're a user of it. It's super horizontal. Anyone can get value from it having anyone in our own internal network start using the product and giving us feedback was a mechanism for us to very early on acquire users and then get that immediate feedback to improve the product. Um, from there, it became referrals. So similar to how we see Magical expanding today, we started noticing people in our network, finding a lot of value and then sharing it with people on their team. And we'd start to see, you know, like we'd be looking at Amplitude and gearing up on our metrics that there was like, you know, a salesperson in one of our networks that started using it. And suddenly there was more salespeople using it at that same company. Um, so that kind of got us to the first few thousand users. And then our secret sauce to actually jumpstarting us to then our next, like I'd say 75,000 users was actually an acquisition. So we actually did acquire a smaller Chrome extension. It was called Auto Text Expander. And it was a product that was, you know, had strong use. And it had about like, I think it was roughly 60 or 70,000 users at the time, but there was actually like no development that had been done on it for a very, very long period of time. The developer just actually kind of created it. It was a very basic text expansion app, but it kind of did what it intended. And because, you know, one of Magical's theses was really around first developing a base of users to, you know, that come back and use the product every day and get value from it. Text expansion is a very easy end to do that because, you know, even if you reflect on your own daily workflows, you're probably either sending messages or typing the same thing again or copying and pasting multiple times a day. And a lot of that is text. And so getting that in on text expansion was a very easy way for us to acquire a large group of users that we could then start to see discoverability of some of our other jobs to be done around filling spreadsheets and filling databases as well, too. And so after we acquired that Chrome extension, we just you know turned the product around, gave it a lot of love, gave it that magical touch, so to speak, into the product that you actually see today. And that's what really jump-started us because people started taking notice and they started really sharing magical. This is a very interesting idea because most of the guests I host, they go through traditional build and a longer game to acquire their first hundred. What determines or what are the factors that you think someone should consider before going and acquiring versus building it from scratch? Especially when you're a startup, you're starting, funds are critical, so you might as well do things that don't scale. So what are the key factors that would decide, okay, probably it's better that I go and buy something similar to kickstart my, or to jumpstart my process? Yeah, absolutely. I think the key things that we look at, I agree, it is actually very non-traditional, but early on, those are the things that kind of work the best is the things that don't scale well or the things that are atypical that most other companies wouldn't do. So the factors that I would look at are, number one, is there, especially if you're very early on, some level of product synergy. So in that, like, is the base of, if you're acquiring it for the product, 
and you know the code and all that sort of stuff, you obviously want to make sure that there is some synergy. If you're not acquiring it for that reason, but you're acquiring it for the user base, is that is that user base actually synergistic with what you're actually offering? So I think that that's like one key thing that we actually looked at in this case was this was actually on our product roadmap to build the user base. Though we didn't have strong fidelity into who they are, we kind of roughly knew the types of people that would be using it. We thought that they would actually take a lot of value from the other features we were building. The other thing I would look at is time. Acquisitions don't happen happen overnight. As a small startup, you are really stretched to the limit in terms of the trade-off decisions you're making daily. And so when you're thinking about resources on an acquisition, it can be a huge time suck. One part of it just being actually identifying the deal, negotiating it, et cetera. The other piece being, you know, if we're going to actually fold in that acquisition, then edge time, marketing time, design time, all of those things are quite a heavy lift for a very small company. So you really want to be thoughtful around whether the benefit outweighs the cost, which is resources and what they could actually be used for. So in this case, because the synergy was so high and the benefit of acquiring that large user base was great for us. We made the decision to actually go ahead and do it. And the third thing that I would think through is cost. So, you know, again, as a small startup, you're watching your burn. You really, really want to be careful around how you're spending. And though an acquisition could be an easy way to acquire users, you know, obviously the economics of it have to make sense. And so we, through our past experience, did have some fidelity in understanding how much it would cost to acquire a user if we were to go through the traditional routes. And so going through that analysis was fairly straight for us to kind of determine that this was a good purchase for us. And so I think that those are the top three that I would think through. Thank you for sharing this. Your product currently is free. And there's here a conundrum because the customers are getting so much value out of a free extension, but the startup has also to make money at a point in time. So how do you think about this intersection of where you can introduce later a pricing model or a freemium model, or maybe you keep it free and have a different way to monetize it. How would you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So this is something that we think about fairly frequently. I actually used to run pricing and monetization in my past life. So this is something very near and dear to me. I think the big thing as a founding team that we've kind of come together with is, and an exec team is just really around what are the monetization philosophies and proof points that will always be true to us. And for Magical, this is actually even on our support page, but you know, number one, we'll always have a free plan because I personally believe for SaaS companies to be successful, especially product-led growth SaaS companies, free is almost table stakes. Like you need easy mechanisms for people to try the product and actually get hooked on it. The second piece there, when we think about pricing is really around like the actual price point. And it's obviously a push and pull between generating lots of revenue, but then also keeping your top of the funnel really wide. And so the other thing that is true for us is we want to make pricing affordable and accessible. And that means that Magical will always be dollars, not hundreds of dollars per user per month. And then the third thing is really around like, and I think this is kind of what you're alluding to is like the timing is like, how do you actually figure out when you actually want to turn it on versus not? And for us, that's something that, again, we discuss pretty frequently. Like we're now at 400,000 users and we have over 10,000 companies using us. But, you know, at the same time, we want to make sure that while we are providing a lot of value to our users, that we're also learning a lot as well, too, in terms of what's sticking and what isn't before we actually turn on monetization. And so, again, that's the push and pull that we constantly sort of think about. You were uploaded on Product Hunt to Product of the Week. This is an amazing feat. Can you walk us through the tactics you did to land at number one? Yeah. 
you probably hear this from every startup, but like a product hunt brings out like the best and worst in your entire team. Like I think we were all glued to our computers starting at midnight, just watching the votes get in. Everyone gets very competitive about product hunt. Yeah. So high level tactics that worked really well for us. So one, there is the very cliched thing that everyone says, which is like leverage your internal network, like friends and family. It's a hundred percent true. Like you really want to make sure that you recruit those folks early on, get them to create product hunt accounts early on because product hunt, actually, I think they filter out people that are new. You really want them to have like aged accounts, they're contributing, et cetera. So we did that maybe four or five months before we were about to launch is we just sent a note out to family and friends, got them hooked up to, to product hunt and started getting them engaged. The other one is start early. So we made our entire team go on at midnight and vote because there is a little bit of a competitive advantage. If you start getting votes in early, it creates some more momentum. And then what we did in our case is, as you mentioned, we came out of stealth with like 400,000 users. And so we actually leveraged our own internal user base. And because we have users all over the world, um, we were able to you know, leverage them accordingly based on their time zones. Because again, you want to make sure that you're getting votes in consistently throughout the day. The last thing I'd say here is like reminders go a, lot, a long way. So um, sending reminder notes to your users, your friends, your family, et cetera, that helped us a lot. And then day of, just have fun with it as much as possible. You know, whether you're number one or you're number three, or even below that, like it's it's fine. It's just like this, I think, silly rite of passage. But yeah, no, we were we were pretty happy at the end to kind of land where we did. Amazing. Uh, you raised to date more than forty million. Along the way, you had certain KPIs. Probably you monitored that said here's the right time to go and raise the latest round, which is thirty five. What are three things that have worked really well in your pitch? Yeah, I'd say again, this probably goes for any startup, like. Generally, like I did a little bit of EIR work before actually joining Magical. And even from the pitches that I saw, the ones that were the most successful is ones that paint a very lofty vision. If you're thinking about it from the VC lens, they want to invest in companies that are the next X billion dollar companies or X billion dollar businesses. So that basically means that your vision has to be incredibly ambitious. The other thing I would say is focus on metrics that tell your story really well. So if you're producing revenue and your revenue is going up and to the right, like really focus on that and tell that story. If you have like crazy user growth, crazy domain growth, uh, really focus on that. So make sure that you're telling the data story really effectively and make sure that's marrying to the vision. And then I'd say the third piece from a pitch perspective is really, it's very practical, but kind of talking through how you're going to use the money um, and how this is going to help expedite you further. So if, you know, your core metric is revenue, then how this is actually going to propel revenue growth even more and the tactics and the investments that you're actually going to make to do that. And that just shows um, some level of thoughtfulness. That said, I would say that in our case, while the pitch was really important, what was more important was the relationships. And so we raised our series A purely on relationships and getting inbound interest from our current investors and then some inbound interest from investors that hadn't met us before. But our current investors were the ones that were kind of telling us like, hey, we know your data, we know your vision, we know how you as an operating team sort of think, and we think this is the right time for you. And so those existing relationships go a really long way. And I'd recommend for any founder, like that should be part of your day-to-day is if you do want to raise, it's building those relationships with other existing investors or prospective investors, because more than anything, more than the pitch deck, investors invest in people. And when you're a really, really small startup, it's the team that they're taking a bet on more than anything else. Thank you for sharing these insights. 
Um, mental uh, health has been a big topic recently, and you know, running a business is also really hard. There's a lot of anxiety going around. How do you deal with work anxiety today? Yeah, this is a um, great question. So I think that there are a few frameworks that I use. The first is knowing what your triggers are. And so, you know, in my case, my stress triggers are not spending time with my kids. I have two young kids. One is four and the other one is eight months old, not getting enough outdoor time and not working out. So I know that if I don't do those three things on any given day, I'm going to be even under more stress than normal. And so what I have tried to now do is actually build rituals around these things. Humans are people of habit. And so actually having those time blocks in your calendar really, really help and go a long way in actually sticking to it. I have a 45 minute time block every week. Like I think it's like 1130 AM on a Thursday where I take my son to music class because it's just something that I know it brings me a lot of joy and makes me feel a lot more present with my kids. You know, building out a workout routine and having that blocked in your calendar is also really helpful. So that's one thing is just understand your triggers build rituals. The other piece is really around knowing what your values are. Um, so I've done a lot of values work in the past and values are kind of precursors to stress triggers because if you're doing things that are so unaligned with your values, then something's just not going to sit right. And so I know that my values, there's values around um, balance and having some semblance of that. And if I don't have some semblance of balance, then I get my stress triggers. I also know that I am someone that really craves adventure. So if things are very monotonous in my day-to-day, -day, not that that happens at a startup, but that's something else that will make me feel a little bit more unsettled. And so just really understanding what your values are and relating them back to your stress triggers could be helpful as well. And then I think the third thing that's really helped me is, and I've tried to get better at over time, obviously not perfect, is like knowing when to hire versus do it on your own. I think just naturally as a founder, you sometimes have a scarcity mindset <laughs> um, especially like when we raised our, our seed round, we grew so fast that we still kind of have semblances of that scarcity mindset, but really knowing when to hire and when something is getting so unscalable that it's harmful for not only yourself, but for the rest of the team is I think really critical. And so we've started getting better at now kind of seeing around the corner, at least three to four months out and understanding what roles we need at the company. So we can start kicking off early before it becomes too much on the team. These are all valuable, uh, insights. Uh, thank you, Rosie, and kudos to all the super moms out there <laughs> who both run a business and take care of their family. What learnings did you bring with you to Magical from Atlassian? Anything that you have used religiously at Magical? Yeah. Um, yeah, I can speak to what I brought over and then what I didn't bring over. What I brought over, technical learnings for sure. I was leading BizOps at Atlassian. And so, you know, things like how to evaluate a SaaS funnel, and actually just even observing Atlassian through its hyper growth has been really helpful from technical learnings in terms of how, what like awesome and amazing actually looks like. I'd say, you know, related to that is observations of what worked and what didn't. So I said, you know, what awesome looks like, but also what didn't work for Atlassian really well. There's lots of parallels between us and Atlassian because we are PLG. And so that's been really helpful for me. And then I'd say on the soft skill side, I brought over, you know, like, Leadership capabilities, I think observing what great leadership looks like was something that was helpful for me while building Magical. Communication, Atlassian was like very big on documenting um, everything lived in Confluence. And then even beyond that, like I think our leadership did a really nice job of actually communicating to the team. And so that's something I've definitely tried to bring over in storytelling. 
one of the most challenging things in my, my last role was like, you could have a lot of data and you can know it, you can know the what, but explaining the why and the insights behind it is super critical as you scale. I'd say that those are the big things that I brought over. The things that I didn't bring over are things that I'd say I had to unlearn being at such a large company. Uh, and it took me months. So the things that I had to unlearn were structure. So coming from an environment that was highly structured, even if you think that like it's not because everyone that's at a big company, there's always some level of chaos, especially if they're going through growth. They're like, oh, it's not very structured. But then you join a startup and you're like, oh, actually, this is what non-structured is like when I don't have an IT team if my like laptop breaks or if I'm, I have to pay, play the role of like sorcerer recruiter because we don't have a recruiter. The other thing I didn't bring over or I had to unlearn was speed. So again, at big companies, oftentimes people will say, oh, I ship things quickly. And I thought we shipped things quickly as well too. And it's not that we didn't, it's just that we shipped fast for the size of the ship that was Atlassian. At a startup, like you're shipping constantly, like daily <laughs> almost. And so our ethos at Magical is ship, fail fast, iterate. And so, you know, that was obviously something I had to unlearn. And related to that is perfectionism. You know, my standards are much different than they were at a big company. If I could get 50% of the fidelity that I used to have in my role, I'm happy. <laughs> like, and that's like, whoa, I, I knocked it out of the park. And then the last thing I had to learn was risk aversion. So I think at bigger companies, you can even think back to like when you're in meetings and all that sort of stuff, like you're almost like praised for when you notice, or you can pick up on the things that might go wrong versus just that optimism of like, who cares? Let's just ship it and see. And so getting out of that mindset of risk aversion was really critical, especially in the first few months at Magical of just, you know, who cares? Let's just ship it and see what happens. And if we fail, but we've learned something, that's actually a huge win. So I'd say that those are the top things. You know, Steve Jobs once said, one way to remember who you are is to remember who your heroes are. Who's your yeah. hero, Rosie? That would be my mom. My mom is like the embodiment of empathy. She's overcome like so much adversity, immigrated to Canada as a teenager without her family. She went through a lot of ups and downs, running away from home, held at gunpoint. Like I always tell her that like she could write a biography and people, it would be like a bestseller overcame cancer years ago. And I think through all of this, she's just incredibly optimistic and has that glass half full mentality and being around her just makes me feel like I can literally overcome anything. So she is definitely uh, my hero and sort of my inspiration for why I'm able to do what I do. Uh, and then beyond that, I was actually surprised because in Canada, you know, Matt leave is actually about a year to 18 months. And I asked my mom weeks ago because I was feeling really guilty. You know, I returned to work pretty quickly after having my second son. And my mom was just like, you know, I went back to work when you were three months old because I had to. And like immediately just had, again, it's that relatability aspect of like her just even telling me that made me feel a lot better. And so it's just great to have someone that's so supportive of what I'm doing and in many ways can kind of relate to what I'm going through. Thank you for sharing your personal experience. One last question. What's next for your startup? Continuing to build and ship <laughs> and iterate and fail. Uh, no, that's literally on a daily basis what we're doing. I think after this college, just going to get back into it heads down and work. So that's more or less every day at Magical. Rosie, thank you for being part of our show. We wish you the best of luck with your venture. This was an amazing episode. How can people reach you? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first off, just check out Magical. Go to getmagical.com, download the app. Um, you'll probably see a number of different touch points to get in touch with any of us on the team, um, including webinars with folks on our team. There's uh, help docs, et cetera. But if you want to contact me directly, um, you can go on either LinkedIn and find me and send me a message, or you can email me at rosie at getmagical.com. Listeners, if you want to be more productive, this is for you. Thank you, Rosie, and have a great day. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers.